you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, we, we will be uh, bouncing around quite a bit. I'm going to get you a little scripture drunk if that's okay, uh, but we will be uh, starting off in Genesis 2, um, starting off there. So I, I always love to hear uh, the certain traditions that people have when it comes to um, understanding uh, what are like the order of like presence and like when you uh, tell your kids they can open up presents, right? So I know some have this like free-for-all where you can just, you know, open up all at once and you just kind of shout out what you get. Others are very, very organized and orderly and you have to just kind of sit and stop and you go one by one, right? Everyone kind of has their things. Uh, for me growing up, uh, we had two specific rules when it came to opening up presents. We, uh, I spent every Christmas day in Alabama at my grandparents' house, and there was this door that separated the living room from the rest of the house. And rule number one is that you don't go through that door without the entire family, that we all go in as a family. Um, all of our big presents were all kind of you know, unwrapped, and so, and so it was a big kind of fun thing where we all just kind of went and saw it and celebrated. So rule number one is that we all go in at one time. Rule number two you don't wake up Uncle Jimmy. Now, <laughs> rule number two and rule number one, I found to be incompatible, <laughs> right? Uh, because Uncle Jimmy liked to sleep. And so in, in hindsight, he probably didn't sleep that late. It's just that I was like seven and I'm up at like 6 a.m. just raring to go. Um, but you, you don't go wake up Uncle Jimmy. And in hindsight, another piece of that is uh, he worked for the State Department, but my sister and I were convinced that he was CIA. And so I think a big part of that is like you don't wake up a CIA operative at 7 o'clock in the morning. You don't know what Jason Bourne stuff is going to happen. <laughs> um, so hindsight is pr probably pretty good. But those are the two rules. And so uh, a big memory of mine when it comes to Christmas time is that I just remember sitting in this area just waiting. I just had this eager anticipation, just longing and waiting to go through that door and get to receive my gifts. Like that's, that's a very clear memory of mine. And I think for a lot of kids, we associate Christmas with waiting. There's this eager longing, this eager anticipation as we wait to see what's under the tree, as we wait to see what is behind the wrapping paper. And I think as adults, we, we, we kind of lose that. We, we lose the, the sense of waiting and longing and anticipation just because we get overwhelmed with buying gifts and holiday parties and who's going where and who's doing what. And there's just so much stuff, right? Um, but when we think about Christmas, when, when, when we think about this season that we've historically called Advent in the church, uh, there should be a sense of waiting. No matter what age you are, there should be this sense of longing and anticipation. And so uh, what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks in our Advent series is that we're going to be walking through how do we learn to wait well? How do we wait well? How do we yearn and long in this season? And, I, and I'll explain why. Um, again, historically in the church, we call the Christmas season Advent. And Advent is a word that means arrival. Um, so, we, so we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. We celebrate the, the Advent, the arrival of Christ coming and accomplishing uh, through his death and resurrection uh, the salvation of our souls, right? And we celebrate that for good reason because that is worthy of celebration. But theologically, the, the reality is that we actually have kind of two Advents that we believe in as Christians. The, the first arrival is when Christ comes, but there's also the second advent, the second arrival where, where Christ comes again. And, and oftentimes I think what happens is that when we are in the Christmas season and we just celebrate what happened without looking forward to what's also coming, we, we miss out on something profound. 
And so what we want to do in this season is we want to figure out how do we celebrate the first advent, the first arrival, while learning to, to yearn and long for the second. Um, we, we live in what, what's called this already but not yet, um, where, where already Christ has died for us, Christ has accomplished unbelievable things for us through his death and resurrection, but there's still more to come. And so how do we not live in this space where it's like, okay, cool, Jesus came, but actually yearn and long for what's coming Next, And so that's where, where we're going in, in the series. And today, I'm going to walk through where do we actually get this idea of two different Advents? Where do we get this idea that Christ came and that Christ is coming again? And what do we actually do with that? So that's where we're going. Sound, sound all right? Yes. Okay, fantastic. All right, so Genesis 2, starting in verse 8. Let me uh, walk, walk, walk you through what we see here in the garden. Genesis 2, starting in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God had commanded him, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, let me explain what we just read. What we just read um, is God's created ideal. God created this this garden called Eden. And, And if I could describe this picture in a phrase, it's this. It's that what we see here is that we have perfect relationship with God in a place that can only be described as paradise perfect relationship with God in a place that can only be described as paradise. And in this paradise, God gave uh, the man a task and he gave him a command. And the task is to work, right? It's to work it, it's to keep, it's to cultivate, it's to bring flourishing to this garden um, that, that he created. Like, hey, like, make this even more beautiful. Build upon what I've already created. But then he gives him a command. And I think this command is unbelievably generous. He says, uh, I command you. Sorry, I lost my spot here. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this, uh, this word, surely eat, is very, very important. Um, in ancient Hebrew, we don't have uh, sort of adjectives or adverbs the way that, that we do in English, right? So some translations will say, you, you may freely eat. And so if you th- think, think about that word freely, it is describing the action. So you can f- free, freely eat, freely run, freely walk. Um, in Hebrew, they don't have, have that. So when, when you read this in the Hebrew, God says, my command to you is I want you to look around this garden, this garden that is paradise. And, I want you, and, and it says, I want you to eat, eat. So what they do is to, to, to really emphasize something, they, they double it. And that's important because God is not saying, hey, so this garden, it's pretty cool. You can kind of eat, you know, you know, pick some cherries here and there. You know, there's some oranges over there. Just, you know, help yourself. No, God is being very strategic of saying, hey, like, I don't want you to eat. I want you to go to town. I want you to eat, eat, right? I, like, like, I want you to, I mean, like, I want you to just go all out. This garden, it is beautiful. It is lush. Everything is a p- 
appealing to the eyes. It's appealing to the taste. Like this is an unbelievable moment where you get to go to town in paradise, where you can eat whatever you want. Everything in this garden belongs to you. I mean, it is a borderline gluttonous command. And then he finishes with a, a, a very specific warning. He says, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this idea of surely eat and surely die, uh, it follows the same sort of grammar. It says where I want you to eat, eat. But then I want you to, to avoid this one tree because in the moment that you eat of this one tree, you will die, die. And I went back and forth if I should say that because I know that for some folks, die, die is a uh, euphemism for something else, right? Um, Diarrhea. I know you're all thinking that, right? Um, but, which, in a way, it's a form of death, right? You know, <laughs> diarrhea. Right? And so God, God kind of calls us out, and he says, hey, like, this is what you can do. But, but, man, just please don't eat of this, because in this moment you are going to die. It's pretty reasonable, is it not? So what happens next? Skip down to Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. So now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, start right there. Notice that the serpent is, he is completely changing the words of God, is he not? The first thing out of his mouth, he says, did God really say, did God actually say that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? No. Quite the opposite. And the proper response should have been, no, no I mean, you've, you got it way off. My, my God is not stingy. My God is not holding out on me. My God is generous. My God has said, I can eat from any tree in the garden. That I can, in fact, I can eat, eat. I can go to town. Like, I can have whatever I want. But instead, she responds, she goes, well, no, that's, that's not entirely true. We, we may eat of the trees in the garden. Notice she doesn't say, you may eat, eat. She just says, yeah, we can have some. We may eat of the trees in the garden, but we just can't eat and can't touch this one tree lest we die. Again, she's shortening. It's not because we will surely die. It's like, ah, we, we may die, whatever that is. And in this moment, the serpent is so crafty. He's so crafty. He, he preys on her sort of like discombobulation, like, ah, oh, that's, that's kind of what God said. That's kind of what he didn't say. And then he goes on to say this in verse 4. So, but the serpent said to her, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve buy this lie that God's holding out on them. That the God who is who's proved to be nothing but generous, all of a sudden is is stingy. The God doesn't want the best for them. And so they begin to kind of ponder and they, and they believe this lie that, yeah, you know what? I, I think you're right. 
I think God is holding out on me in some way. And so they take and they eat. And sin enters the world, and in a moment, everything in this created ideal fractures. This place where there is perfect relationship, and a place that can only be described as paradise, that is gone. That is gone. Now, in this moment, did they drop dead? No. And we'll get to that in a second. But they did experience death. They did experience death, and they experienced death in two specific ways. First, they experienced relational death. Relational death. death. Uh, in Genesis 3, 3, 8, it goes on to say, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So catch this. Prior to this moment, they are interacting with God. They are walking. They are talking. They have, they have right relationship. They have all the, the presence and intimacy with God they can possibly want. And in this moment, they sin. Shame takes them over. And their instinctual reaction, when they hear God walking in the garden, their instinctual reaction is to hide. It's to cover. It's to hide. And in a moment, you see a, a stark difference between what was and what is now. So relational death, the first thing that happens is their relationship with God has been severed. But here's the second type of death they experienced. The death of paradise. The death of paradise. The Garden of Eden, um, the word Eden is a word that means delight. God had literally created this garden to be a place where his people can flourish and have joy and delight. And in a moment, all of that it's taken away. All of that is broken. Uh, God goes on uh, in verses 16 and, and 19 to explain the consequences of sin and how this is going to affect the uh, garden and the world around it. It says this in verse 16. It says, And to her he said, I will surely multiply your pain in, child, in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Adam and Eve's task is still there to work, to till, to cultivate, to, to help bring flourishing to what God had created. But now, that, that same ground that they are called to, to till, now it's going to fight back. What, what once was work in, in, in a joyful sense, now toil is involved. Now there is sweat, now there is pain, now there is agony, now there is all of these things that, that this perfect ideal that God had created, it, it doesn't exist anymore. Right? And we feel this, right? We, we look around the world, and, and, and there, there, are, there are moments when we catch glimpses of what paradise looks like. But, like, if you've ever, like, watched the sunset over the Pacific, for about 30 seconds, you're like, this is what paradise looks like. If you've ever stood at the base of a mountain that just takes your breath away, you have a glimpse of what paradise looks like. If you've ever had a, a, just a fantastic laugh until you cry, laugh till your stomach hurts type of conversation, over a good food or a good cup of coffee with a friend, you have a glimpse of what paradise looks like. But the majority of the world, we look around, there is, there is disease that are taking people far too young. We've all watched people in, in our life experience abuse or heartache or hurt 
There's all of these things that we look around and we think something's just not right. I mean, something is just not right. This, this can't be how God created things to be. And you're right, it's not. Something has been broken. Something is horribly, horribly wrong. It's because in this moment, two types of death were experienced. Death to our relationship with God and death to paradise. It's a very dark moment in human history. But God goes on to promise something very, very specific. In Genesis 3, verse 15, he's talking to the serpent, and he says, says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is profound. Because in this moment, God is making a very specific promise. He says, there, he says, from this moment on, there is going to be enmity. There is going to be strife. There is going to be drama between your offspring and her offspring. He says, but there is coming a day where one of her offspring, one of the, the people that she birthed, that person is going to come, and he is going to bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Now, I don't, I don't love the translation of this word bruise. Um, it's actually the Hebrew word shuf. And the reason why I don't like it being used as bruise here is because it doesn't capture the intensity or the finality of what God is actually saying in this moment. Um, this is the same word that Job uses in Job 9, but whenever he, he, he describes him losing literally everything in his life. In Job 9, uh, 17 through 18, he, he says this. He says, For he shalou, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. This word shaluf, it's not, or shuf, it's not a word that means to, to bruise in the sense of, oh yeah, once you're bruised, you'll, you'll kind of get over it. No, this is a word that means to crush. And what God is saying in this moment is there is coming a day where there is going to be this interaction where the serpent strikes at the man, and he crushes his heel. He gets a really good lick in there. But this offspring, he is going to crush the head of the serpent. It is going to be devastating, and it is going to be final. And what God is pointing to is the very thing that we celebrate when we celebrate Advent. We celebrate the arrival of this person that was promised in Genesis 3 that would come and would crush the head of the serpent once and for all. When we celebrate the, the advent or the arrival of Jesus, we are celebrating what he has come to do on the cross, that through his death and resurrection, he crushes the head of the serpent and restores relationship to God, that relationship that was lost in the garden. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. There is no more reason to hide. There is no more reason to cover. There is no more reason to, to go find fig leaves and try to just cover up because we're just ashamed. The death and resurrection of Jesus, it, it changed that. It fixed that. We can now approach our God with boldness and with confidence because Christ has done the work for us. He has crushed the head of the serpent, and that relationship has been restored. And that is what we celebrate when we celebrate Advent, that Christ has come to do that. But there's also the second advent. Because if you notice, while our relationship with God has been restored, we're not in paradise, are we? 
There's still more restoration that needs to take place, and that's what the second advent is going to do. In Acts 3, Peter is uh, preaching a sermon in the temple that really bothers all the religious folks. Um, But in that sermon, uh, he says this, 3 verse 17. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Advent number one. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the truth of his holy prophets long ago. There's coming this, the second advent, this, the second moment when Christ returns, and he's going to restore and make all things new. That all of the things that plague this broken, fallen world, they are going to disappear. And so the balance for us is how do we live in this tension of, man, we we love and we celebrate what Christ has done. Yes and amen. But we also long for what Christ is going to do next. That Christ is going to come and he is going to restore. I I love the way that John in his revelation describes this. In, In verse Uh, Verse 3 through 5, he says this, uh, Revelation 21. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is the future that we long for. We long for a future where God makes all things new. No more crying, no more pain, no more heartache, no more suffering. All those things pass away. So what do we do with this? I said a lot at you. Practically, what do we do? My hope and my prayer is that we are a people who use this season to celebrate and to long. That's it. We celebrate what Christ has done, but we don't stop there. We, we yearn, we long for what's to come. And I think for some of us, that's easier than others. For some of you, the holidays are really, really difficult. The holidays are actually just a giant sign, a giant signal that reminds you that this is not paradise. You look around the tree on Christmas Day and there's a person missing. You can't go to certain houses because there's just too much tension. You look around and there's just brokenness everywhere. Sometimes the holidays are one of those things that that you just feel on a deep level. It's, It's not full of joy. It's not full of celebration. It's full of heartache and full of pain. Those moments should make us long for the day when all those things are going to cease. Because it is coming. And so over the, the next few weeks, we're, we're going to talk about what does it actually mean to wait well? How do we wait in the moments when it feels like God is taking way too long? Or maybe God's just a liar. Maybe God's not coming at all. Maybe this is just a cosmic joke. We are wasting our time. How do we wait well in the moments when God's just taking his sweet time? Or what do we do practically in the meantime? 
I mean, I, I assume that I'm here for a reason, that God put us on this earth for a purpose. How do, we, how do we navigate the time that we have left? Like, what do we actually do in the waiting? We're going to walk through all of that. But today, I want us to just start to develop this posture of yearning and for longing. And so I want to close by reading a psalm over us. This is Psalm um, 130. But I want to back up a second just really quick to kind of give some context to why the psalm is so powerful. Um, if you remember in the garden, um, Adam and Eve, they, they clothed themselves with fig leaves. That was their best, uh, I guess, attempt, right? It's like, God's coming quick. We've got to grab some leaves, right? Um, and that, that was their instinctual thing. Like, I'm going to, to hide and cover by using these leaves. Well, God decided that that wasn't sufficient. That wasn't the right type of covering. And so what God does in verse 21 of chapter 3 of Genesis, it says this. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God made garments of skins to clothe them. Going back to the idea, because I, I don't know if you're anything like me. I'm a bit of a skeptic by nature. And so when I see God make a bold declaration, like, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. I think you better kill them, right? I mean, like, keep your promise, dude. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I, I understand, like, experiences of death, and these are death-type experiences, but, like, you said you were going to kill them, and you didn't kill them. What we see in this moment is profound picture of the grace of God. Because make no mistake, some, something died. Something died. Because where did those skins come from? In this moment, we see the first foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that God sets up. That God says, you will surely die. Your sin will kill you. But in this moment, they get to live. And they are covered by the skins of some innocent animal who's minding its own business. Most likely a lamb. That lamb died so that they could live. And so the whole sacrificial system that God sets up in the waiting, in the meantime, as they are waiting for, the, for this Messiah, this Savior, this first advent, what God sets up is this system where, where every year the people of God would go and they would sacrifice a lamb in, in order to, uh, to live. It was this substitutionary atonement that was happening. And they would go every year and they would long to see the moment when they could be covered, not by uh, the blood of the physical lamb, but the blood of the lamb that would ultimately come to wash away their sins forever. And so Psalm 130 is called a song of ascent. And this is a song that the people of Israel would sing as they are ascending to the temple. And there's a line in here that I, that I love. It says, um, that more than the watchmen wait for the morning, so my soul longs for you. And I want you to think about this, this sense of waiting. A watchman is a person that, that is sitting on top of a city, and, and, and they are trying to the best of their ability to, to protect it. They are trying to, to, to stand and to keep guard, but there's no electricity, right? So you're just staring out into the abyss. You're staring out into darkness. You have no clue where the enemies are. You have no clue how far danger is. So the watchmen, they, they sit there all brave and bad like they're protecting the city, but they're not. They are longing for sunlight. 
They are longing for the first crack on the horizon when they get to see the sun peek up over the hills because they know that when daylight comes, they are safe. When daylight comes, they can rest easy because they can finally see again. And they sing about more than the watchmen long and wait for that first little peak of sunlight in the morning. That's how my soul longs and waits for Christ to return to make all things new. And so my, my hope and my prayer is that that is our posture. That this season, we develop this posture that, yes, we celebrate what Christ has already done, but we long for the moment. Like, like the watchmen long for the moment, that we long to see Christ return and make all things new. So let me, let me read this to you. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let me pray. Father, you are uh, abundantly gracious to us. The fact that over and over and over we see that you do not treat us uh, as our sins deserve. The while you've been very clear that when sin is committed, something or someone has to die over and over, you have allowed someone to step in our place. And so, Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you for the sac sacrifice that Jesus made that we get to celebrate, that his arrival meant salvation. Lord, we also want to be a people who long for the final restoration. We, we long for the moment when you come to make all things new, where there is no more pain, there is no more heartache, there are no more empty seats at the dinner table at Christmas time. There is no more family tension. There is no more disease and sickness. God, will you come? We long to see you restore. We long to see you make all things new. And so, Father, in the moments where we are called to wait, may we wait with eager anticipation. May we wait with a, a joy as a kid on Christmas longing to see the gifts under the tree, may we have an eager anticipation to see your face once and for all as you make all things new. We love you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.